thank you guys for having me. I've been here several times now, so I, I've gotten to know uh, several, several of you. I kind of feel like the, the guest associate pastor uh, here at times. So it's, it's fun to be able to, uh, to have a, a church. Um, it, my, my do- I, th- I think I say, say this every time, but every time I bring my daughter, uh, we have our church and then we have new church. So I'm like, hey, you want to go to new church today? Uh, she doesn't know any of the names. She doesn't even know the name of our church, you know. So uh, we're, it's just church, you know. And then it's, we meet in a school. So every time we drive by the school, she's like, that's my church. And she's going to confuse someone really bad one day, uh, telling them that her church is a school. Um, so it's always a joy to be here, and uh, it's been a lot of fun preaching through Exodus with these guys, and I've been, I've been preaching uh, a fair amount, uh, going to other churches also, and preaching some, preaching at our church, so it's been fun. Uh, today's passage um, is, a, is a really good one. We're, we're talking through Exodus chapter 5 and 6, and it's a lot of text, so we're not going to read every bit of it. But I'm going to, to set it up a little bit, help, help you understand what's happening, and then we're going to walk through the text, and then we'll, we'll draw some, some practical application from that. Um, we preach through books of the Bible. I know Claude loves to preach through books of the Bible. That's because we feel like God has given us a word, and it's, it's from the Bible. And so we're, we're really glad to be able to just walk through uh, Exodus in that way. Uh, today's passage... Um, the sermon, we called it Broken Bodies, Broken Spirits, uh, because um, what's happening is the people of Israel are being oppressed even worse by Pharaoh. And the question that we have to ask ourselves as we start this is, have you ever tried to really be faithful to God and just feel like you get kicked in the gut as a response? Like, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to check the right boxes. I'm going to do the right thing and be faithful, but it just doesn't seem to work out properly for me. Have you ever experienced that? Where you're just left with a a broken spirit and feeling like God's broken his promises to you. I think that this is something that's common for for people of faith. Um, How many of us have friends who have left the faith, and this is their story. You know, I tried the church thing. My life, it didn't go better, so I just gave up on it. That's the story of many people who who lose their faith, who walk away from the Lord. Let me tell you a a story about a couple of friends of mine named Blake and Jenna. Uh, Blake and Jenna uh, were members. My wife and I uh, met in Louisville, Kentucky. My wife's from Boston, but she was living in Louisville. She's a military kid. And we met in a church in Louisville called Sojourn, and it was a pretty big church, um, but we met there through serving in the children's ministry together. That's how we got to know each other. We taught a four- and five-year-old's class together every week for six months, and then I asked her uh, out on a date, and um, the rest is history, right? So uh, now we teach our uh, children's class every day in our home with our three-year-old and our eight-year-old. Uh, so we're just continuing the same thing that we started. Um, so we met there, and we had, we had a lot of friends there, a lot of people. It's a similar church to this in, in some ways. Like the, the average age was around the same age that we were at the time. Um, and there was uh, a couple that we met named Blake and Jenna. They started dating around the same time that we started dating. They got married six months after we got married. Just a, a normal couple, um, a couple years older than us. I'm 30, so they were, I think they were 32, or like they're, they're like 34-ish right now. And um, my wife and I, we've been married for six years, 
and uh, so they're, they're right around the same time. And a couple years ago, probably two years ago, um, they had a baby. We, we have a three-year-old. They had, they had a baby two years ago, so they have a two-year-old. And right after the baby was born, things start to go pretty poorly for Blake and Jenna. And they're just normal people um, like us. I mean, we, we just uh, felt like they were they're just normal friends, you know. Um, but Blake lost his job, and uh, it felt like a, cut, a, a kick in the gut to them. And then right after that, um, as he's struggling to, to provide for his family, their home is flooded, and they lose all of their furniture. Everything that they own, they have to completely redo it. And this is all with a new baby. So baby's born, Blake loses his job, home is flooded. They're feeling like uh, God is just adding insult to injury. After that, uh, Jenna is diagnosed with colon cancer. And uh, so she's 32 years old at the time, diagnosed with colon cancer. So now they're just fighting um, for her literal life. And the whole time uh, that they do this, they are so faithful, so faithful. My wife and I have remarked several times that they have been an ultimate model to us on how to suffer. And it's really just from afar. We don't really even talk to them. They post on Facebook about how they're trusting in the Lord through their suffering and through these hardships. And it's easy for us to put ourselves in their shoes because we have a kid very same, very similar age. Um, this past Tuesday, the story's kind of raw. This past Tuesday, Jenna went to be with the Lord. And the whole time, Blake has been faithful. Jenna has been faithful. Their church community's been around them. They had the memorial service yesterday um, where over a thousand people came and celebrated her life. And what we see here is just an example of how sometimes things don't go the way we plan. This is not what they were going for in their life, but they were just such an example of faithfulness the whole way. But you have to think that they, they had broken spirits, <laughs> that their spirits were broken many times. And I think that what they would tell you, what Blake would still tell you, what Jenna would tell you, is that broken spirits do not mean broken promises. When your spirits are broken, it does not mean that God has broken his promises to you. In today's passage, the people of Israel are trying to be faithful to God's call, but they're being oppressed even more. And their spirits are broken, and they feel as though God's broken his promises to them. And so... Let's just walk through it a little bit. If you have your Bible, or if you have an app on your Bible, or if you have a browser on your Bible, you can search Exodus chapter 5, uh, because we're just going to do it like that. I don't have anything on the screen for you. I'm sorry about that, but you know you can just pull it up, and uh, it'll be a, a good exercise for us to just walk through the passage like this. Um, Exodus chapter 5. So Last week, if you were here last week, or if, if you weren't, I'll catch you up real quick. Last week, we finished Moses' calling by God at the burning bush. God spoke to Moses literally at the burning bush, and he said, go to Egypt and set my people free, is, is the essential message from the burning bush. And this week, Moses has already made it back to Egypt, and 
our story picks up with Moses confronting Pharaoh, saying, God sent me, let us go. We're going to go worship God in the wilderness now. So let us go, Pharaoh. So let's pick it up there. In verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord. Now, if you notice that that Lord is in small caps in your Bible, and that means it means Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. This is the proper name for God. Thus says the God, the one true Lord, Y-H-W-H, the God of Israel. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responds, and it's, it's not what, you're, what you would hope to hear. Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, in reality, Pharaoh probably knew very well who their God was. He probably knew this name quite well. What he's saying is, I do not recognize the authority of your God here. I don't know who that is. Why should I care? I don't care. He does not recognize the authority of this God. So he says, who's that? And instead of letting the people go, Pharaoh, in turn, decides to oppress the people more. And The way that he oppresses them is he says, you're going to continue to make bricks, but now you're no longer going to have any straw to make your bricks with, which makes the job a lot harder. This is like, but he's going to make the quotas the same. You have to make the same amount of bricks, you Israelites, but I'm not going to give you the essential tools for it. You're going to have to go harvest the straw yourself. This is like telling an accountant that he has to get all your taxes done without a calculator, okay? It's, you could get it done, it's just going to be a lot more work for you. And so they are feeling oppressed here. And what he actually does whenever they fail to meet the deadlines is he calls them lazy. He says, you're just lazy, that's why you can't meet the deadlines. And it seems like a common theme uh, for oppressors to call those they are oppressing lazy when, they, when the system is bent against them in an unjust way. And so this oppressor is saying, you're just lazy, that's all there is to it. And this whole thing, this is a political power move for Pharaoh. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He wants to turn the people of Israel against their leaders. He says, oh, your leaders want to set you free. Your leaders want to take you out of my, my grip. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it harder for you so that you abandon your leadership and so that you will remain faithful to me. It's a political power move. And you know what? It works. The brick-making becomes back-breaking, and the Israelites end up going to Moses and to Aaron. In verse 21, it says this, 521, The Lord Yahweh look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And so the Israelites are, are fearful for their lives. He's saying that they've turned on them. They feel like God has broken their promise, his promise to them. And so chapter 5 ends with Moses turning to God, the one true God, and saying in verse 22, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? 
For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people, and you have not delivered your people at all. You see what he does? Moses says, Lord, why have you done evil to people? Moses is blaming God for this. His spirit is broken. They've tried to be faithful. And Moses is questioning God's promises. Are those promises broken? And so then chapter 6 begins. And chapter 6 is this beautiful response by God. And this Yahweh God, he's reminding Moses of his glorious promise of his great covenant. He reminds Moses that he's going to deliver them, that he's going to redeem them. He's going to lead them to the land that he has promised them. After God's great reminder of covenant faithfulness, that's just, we're going to walk through that step by step in a few minutes, but after he reminds them of this faithfulness, the, the, the story takes another turn and goes straight into a genealogy that seems really oddly placed <laughs> because you get this, this drama, the drama's really heightened right now, and God just reminded them of his covenant faithfulness. You're thinking Moses is going to storm back in there and, and take over and, and really tell Pharaoh how it is, and all we're left with is a list of names. And, but when you study ancient Near Eastern history, you know that there's never a genealogy that's misplaced because they love genealogies. You can put them anywhere, they go everywhere. That's kind of how it works in ancient Near Eastern history. And, and it's really interesting to the people. It's kind of like Ancestry.com. There's still an interest in genealogies today. People like to know where they came from. And so as an original reader of this, this genealogy would be very interesting, although it's not the most thrilling as we read it. But you need to understand why genealogies are there. But in sum, this story is the story of a people of God trying to be faithful to God's calling and receiving a kick in the gut in return. And this story has so many implications on people who really want to do the right thing, but always seem to lose. I think that this story is helpful for Christians who, have, who are burnt out or who have been burnt by the church. I think that this story is helpful for anyone who questions or feels as though their spirit is broken and questions God's promises and if they've been broken as well. So let's dive into what it means for us today. All right, we're going to look at just two quick points, just two points as we dive into this story and what it means for us. The first point is what breaks your spirit? And the second point is the promises of God, how God keeps his promises. So what breaks your spirit and how God keeps his promises? What breaks your spirit? What breaks your spirit? Can you resonate with the people of Israel? When you try to obey God, do things get harder and harder? Have you ever felt like the system is bent against you or those in authority over you are ruthless and will not listen to what you have to say. Look, following God um, is not easy. And I can understand how you can feel discouraged at times. It really makes sense why you would feel discouraged at times. But I think that one of the reasons why we have discouragement is because we have unmet expectations. We have unmet expectations. We expect 
God to bless us. We expect God to make us happy if we do our part. That's the Christianity I was taught when I was a kid, right? If you are good, if you're a good kid, if you do your part, if you follow God, God will bless you. Everything will work out for you. You'll be happy. You'll have everything you want. Like I said, my wife and I were married six years ago. And when we got married, this is not something we realized, but one thing that we came to realize is that both of us came to the marriage with a lot of expectations, we came to the marriage with a lot of expectations. For example, um, we got married. I was 24. My wife was 20. Um, we had never lived on our own for very long. I'd lived on my own for a little bit. She moved out of her parents' house and into a house that we rented together. So my expectation when we got married, completely unreasonable, but for some reason I thought it was my expectation that she would be the one managing the finances of the home. Um, she hadn't done that before, but that was my expectation. I, that, I just thought that that's what was gonna, going to happen. And so when our water bill did not get paid, my complete unreasonable expectation was, was <laughs> burst, and I got angry for not righteous reasons. We should have had conversations. We should have talked about this. But my expectation was broken. And I, respected, I, I responded sinfully as a response. But many of us have similar experiences with God. We come to our relationship with God with expectations. We expect God to give us happiness and the good life if we are faithful to him. If you are good, things will go well for you and you will be happy. Friends, that is not Christianity. That is karma. Karma says, what you give, you get in return. So you give evil, you get evil in return. You give good, you get good in return. But that is not the message of Christianity. Within the Christian worldview, we have another word for this. And it's called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel, at its worst, says if you are faithful to God, He wants you to be rich. He wants everyone to be rich. But there's a problem to that. It's not, that's not explained anywhere in the Bible. In fact, the Bible seems to say, blessed are the poor, for they'll receive theirs in heaven. And you know, many of us, we might scoff at the prosperity gospel. We might know that the prosperity gospel isn't true. But we believe, I believe, in, our, in my heart, a prosperity gospel light, a, a light prosperity gospel, a diet prosperity gospel that tells me that I should be happy and I shouldn't suffer. And there is a sense in that that's true, that those are signs of a broken world. It's not as it should be. We shouldn't suffer, but that doesn't mean I should not expect suffering. Suffering happens. My favorite passage in the entire Bible that teaches on this, completely completely deconstructs the prosperity gospel is Hebrews chapter 11 verses 32 and 38 through 38. One of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Okay? What it does is it summarizes some great heroes of the faith. So let's read that and then it takes a, a, a crazy turn at the end. So it summarizes people who did a great thing for God. R listen with me. And what more shall I say? 
for, for time would fail me. And he had just gone through explaining all about Moses and David and all these great heroes. And then he's just kind of making a, a final, let me, there's more, I could say so much more on this is what he's saying. He's saying, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions. This is all through God's power. They did these great things. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword, were made, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Amazing things God has done. All of these amazing things. But then he doesn't even skip a beat. And the next things he's saying are these. Okay, He doesn't give any big interlude, but this, but this. He says, literally, women received back their dead from resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in, sh- in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And I think if you're going to gather anything here, it should be this. That suffering is a normal part of the Christian life and at times is even to be celebrated and to be put in the context of this is a glorious thing for God's name. Our bodies may be broken. Our spirits may be broken. We may feel like we are at the end of our rope. But God's promises are not broken. He is faithful. He is faithful. So let's talk about that. How God keeps his promises. How does God keep his promises? When Moses goes to God and he asks, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? God responded by listing out, all of these promises that he's going to keep. And so we can, we can learn from this. When we are at the end of our ropes, when we feel like we have broken spirits, God is reminding us that these are the things that will not change. Though the tornadoes of life come through, these things are buried in the ground. And you can count on them to weather the storm. Though many things may not, our money may not, our comfort may not, our health may not, you can count on these things to be eternally secure. You can count on these things to be there no matter what. These reminders of God's goodness and deliverance can keep us fueled through the dark nights of the soul when our spirits are breaking and our hearts are hardening. Let's look at each of them. There's, I think there's six, but I'll go quickly. Each of these promises points us forward to the promises God has made to us through the person of Jesus. Each of these 
It's just a, a taste, a foreshadowing of what happens when we trust in Christ, when we trust in the Messiah, the, the one who came to establish God's kingdom on earth. And the first thing that, that God promises him is he, or reminds him of is that he reminds him of who he is. Verse 2, six, uh, chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make known to them. So Pharaoh says, back, if you remember back in the story, Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? And this is the equivalent of being oppressed by the schoolyard bully, being beaten up, and you say, you better watch out, my dad is the rock. And he says, who is the rock that I should be afraid of him? And then your dad pulls up in his Mercedes later and steps out, and he says, I am the rock, and I'm about to lay the people's elbow the smack down here. This is what's happening here. Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh? And Yahweh, all he has to say is, my name is Yahweh. This is my name. Don't forget my name. Because I am not like the other gods. You know, this story, that's not Moses versus Pharaoh. This story is the God of Israel, the one true God, the Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. God versus the gods of Egypt, the false gods, the ones that couldn't be the true God. And so God is reminding Moses, this is still my battle. This is my name. You don't have to worry about it. It's me versus the false gods, and I'm going to take the real thing every time. Next thing that God does is he reminds them of the covenant. He's, in verse 4, he says, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. And so he's establishing this covenant. The idea of covenant is something that is not common in our society. Marriage used to be more of a covenant. People still view it as a covenant sometimes now. But we are used to contracts, right? And contracts can be broken. But covenants are like a contract written in blood. A covenant says, if you break this, you die. And if I break this, I die. And so God's saying he's made a covenant with us. Except for what we see throughout all of Scripture is that God has made this covenant with us, and he's saying, if I break this covenant, I die. If you break this covenant, I die. He's saying, I will take the penalty for the covenant. And so Moses, remember, I've made a covenant with you. I'm going to keep it. You've already broken my covenant. You've already sinned against me. You've already feared other gods more than me. You haven't listened to my voice. And it points us forward to God dying for his people, for his covenant breakers, to Jesus dying the death that we deserve. And so the second thing he does is he reminds 
Moses of the covenant. And then he reminds them. He continues by in verse 5. He says, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have heard the groaning. So he reminds them that he's heard their groaning. That's all there is to this reminder. I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel. I've heard their groaning. I, I do a lot of pastoral care where you know, people might be hurting or going through something. They want to come and talk to me. And at first, when I first started pastoral care, I thought I had, had to have really insightful things to tell people every time they came and talked to me. Until I realized that many people, and actually what's best for people usually, is for me to be quiet and to listen and to care. And that's what God's saying he's done. He's saying, I've heard your groaning. I've not left you alone. I hear you. I hear you speaking. I hear you complaining. I hear and I care. I've heard it. This is what God does. He hears your groaning. When you go to God in prayer in the midst of a broken spirit, he hears you and he cares for you. When the night is dark. Our God is there. The next thing he promises is he promises deliverance. Verse 6 says, I am the Lord. Reminding them again, I am the Lord. Kind of like I am the rock. Do you smell what I'm cooking? I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt, of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery, from the slavery to them. And God promises deliverance. And in fact, verse 7, I actually love this. This is one thing that I love in this passage. Because verse 7 says, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Moses is saying, is coming, saying, please, you got to help us. It's getting worse. Our spirits are broken. And God's saying, I've already brought you out from under the burdens of, of the Egyptians. He's saying, done deal. I've already, I've already done it. It's in the past. I've already accomplished this. And friends, although we are not under literal slavery like the Israelites of the time, we are in a sense enslaved to ourselves. We are slaves to sin. We keep doing the things that will ultimately kill us. We keep going through these cycles of sin and doing the things that are self-destructive and destructive to our society. We continue to sin and live our lives only for ourselves at times. And this is because sin is progressive, it's deceitful, it will ruin you. You know those small seeds of sin, that small seed of bitterness in your life. If you leave that unchecked, you will become a vengeful monster. Those small sins, those small seeds of sexual sin in your life, if you leave those unchecked, you will become an adulterer. That's just the way that it works. Because the, the, the spiral of sin is a downward escalating spiral. We end up like Pharaoh if we don't kill our sin actively. And what God is saying is, I have come to deliver you from the slavery to sin. I've come to deliver you from these things. He's done it through giving us his son to take the penalty that we deserve for our sin. You see, Jesus defeated our sin through his life, death, 
resurrection and ascension. We can't forget that last part because not only did he die for our sins, but he came back victorious over them and defeated them and broke the cycles of sin. And now when we are tempted to sin, we're given a choice not to sin because we can love Jesus more than we love ourselves. And so thus, our cycles of sin have been broken. We have deliverance. And one day, we will be fully delivered. And he promises redemption. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. This is the first time that the word redemption or redeem shows up in the Bible. And And what we see here is very similar to what we were seeing about the deliverance. But to redeem means to gain possession of something in exchange for a payment. And that's what Jesus does for us. God pays the penalty for us to redeem us from slavery. Jesus was abandoned for us so that we do not have to feel abandoned by God. And he promises them a new home. He says, I will... Verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. And so they long for a new home. This land, this is, this is the promised land of God. This is the land of Israel. This is what they're longing for the whole time. And as we, when we hear land, when we hear them longing for this land, what we can think, what we can put in our mind is heaven. The new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. And so as we think about this, we can know that we also have been promised a new home, a new land. When we are in dark nights of the soul, we can long for that. John Newton gives an illustration about this. John Newton was the author of Amazing Grace, the hymn. This is an awesome illustration. He says, imagine a man who inherited a large estate in New York City. This is way back. I don't know what years, like 1600s or something. Um, Probably not that early, because New York wouldn't be much of anything. Um, It would be like Boston was the best city. Uh, It still is. Um, So a, a man received a large inheritance in New York City. And while he's on his way, his carriage breaks down about a mile from his new inheritance. And then he has to walk the last mile. Do you think he would be saying, ah, my carriage broke down, my carriage broke down, just beating himself up about this as he walks to his multi-million dollar estate that he's just inherited. And friends, what, what he's drawing here is we're in the last miles. We're heading toward a new home. When we keep that in our mind, when we keep that promise as a reality, we can anchor our souls on it when the tornado comes. We can just anchor ourselves to it, that we have a new destination. We will not be left here. We will not be utterly destroyed, though we may feel like it. Jesus received the destruction for us so that we can inherit a new land, so that we can go and be with God forever. We have to remind ourselves of these things all the time, all the time. These have to be the promises that we keep in our mind for those dark times. We have to remind ourselves that these are 
our anchor points, the things that we have to hold on to with broken spirits. And after Moses said all these things, he, he took God's message and he went to the Israelites and he said, this is what God says. Here are all of his promises. Are you guys ready? And what they say, what, what the scripture says is they did not listen to Moses because their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Their broken spirits had hurt them to the point to where they were blinded from the truth of the reality of the world. The message of this passage is don't be like Israel. Don't allow the cares of this world, the heartaches of this world, the things that are hard and broken to blind you from the promises that God has given for his future kingdom. You may have broken spirits, but his promises will never be broken. You may have broken spirits, but his promises will never be broken. Let's pray. God, we we thank you for your word. God, I want to thank you for, I want to pray for anyone here who feels like they're at the end of their rope or who has felt that way or who has friends who have left the faith because of their broken spirit. God, we pray that you heal our spirits, that you give us new spirits, that we can long for your coming, that you help us to anchor ourselves to these promises that will not be moved, though the storms of life whip around. God, as we respond to you in song, help our hearts to cry out for our new homes, for our new home, for our new place that you've prepared for us. Jesus, we know you're there. You're preparing it now. God, help us to long for that each day and each moment. In Jesus' name we pray.